That banjo music must mean it's another, it's time for another episode of the Antietam and Beyond podcast. Uh, welcome everyone. I'm Tom McMillan with my co-host, uh, John Banks, and we have a really exciting episode for you today. We have one of the, the giants of the Civil War history community with us, Scott Hartwig. But before we get to Scott, who's on the line, uh, John and I just want to thank you, the listeners. We have been overwhelmed by the reaction to our first episode uh, on, on Facebook and otherwise people coming, uh, getting back to us. Uh, we did not expect that. Uh, we it, It's what you always hope for. And we've been very excited. And some of the feedback has been amazing. John told kind of an inside fun story uh, last, last episode, and he got a reaction to it already. John, you want to explain what that was? Yeah, the mystery dog has been revealed in the 40-acre <laughs> cornfield. I was there... Oh, probably half a dozen years ago, it was a wintry day, gray and overcast. I'm standing by the 16th Connecticut Monument. It's one of my favorite places on the field. I turn to my left, I see a giant St. Bernard that I thought was something out of uh, the movie Cujo. And it just so happened that after the podcast came out last week, we found that out that it wasn't a giant St. Bernard. It was a Bernese mountain dog named Scout. And that dog happens to be a, a very friendly dog, according to- uh, To clarify, one of our, yeah, to clarify, one of our listeners who's a guide at Antina Battlefield texted yes. me and said, I heard, heard that story. I had a friend from Connecticut who thinks they met John <laughs> Banks with their dog. I think this might be the person. So we put, and it was, it was the per of all people listening. It was just so you you never know uh, what's good. We didn't ex did not expect that from uh, the first episode of our podcast, but it's fun, and we hope we have some more fun that way. But our guest uh, today is Scott Hartwig, who is well known to anyone in the Civil War community as supervisory historian at Gettysburg National Military Park uh, for twenty years, and the author of a new epic book. I dread the thought of the place. The Battle of Antietam and the End of the Maryland Campaign. It's a minor work. It's about only 960 pages. Uh, Scott didn't spend much time working on it at all. <laughs> so, Scott, uh, congratulations, congratulations on the book and welcome to the podcast. That's great to be on. Thanks for having me. You know, S Scott, the one thing, a, a lot of us probably feel this way. I felt I knew you for years before I really knew you because I was always at Gettysburg. My uh, The first Ranger tour I went on, you led. The first story I read in the Gettysburg Magazine, you wrote on the 11th Corps. Oh. I was at an event once with uh, where the speaker was the great Gettysburg historian Harry Fonz in the late oh. 90s. And someone said, Harry, who do you think is going to be the next great historian at Gettysburg? And he said, Scott Hartwig. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he was, he, he was right. That's all a preamble to... How did the ultimate Gettysburg historian, Gettysburg National Military Park historian, write the definitive book on the Battle of Antietam? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I have no idea. No, I, I, I uh, it's actually kind of a simple story. Is uh, This goes all the way back in the 1980s. I was working at the Cyclorama Center Information Desk with a couple of my uh, co-worker friends, and we were talking about battles and campaigns of the Civil War that um, didn't have a lot written about them. And this was, it had to be uh, pre-Landscape Turned Red by Stephen Sears, because that book had not come out yet. So you had you had uh, a Jim Murphy's book, Gleam of Bayonets, and then you had Francis Palfrey's book. He was a veteran of the battle, the Antietam and Fredericksburg. And you really didn't have any other books about the Battle of Antietam that had been published yet. So we were talking about it. We got around. I was talking about Antietam. And I had always had a special fascination with Antietam ever since I'd read Bruce Catton's Mr. Lincoln's Army. And um, I think because of that, I rather flippantly said, well, I'm going to write the, I'm going to write a history of Antietam, not having a clue what that really meant, um, thinking it would be something that was manageable and I could do and um, I learned, though. I mean, I, I learned the hard way that it, it was a huge task and um, it took me a really, really long time. And once I actually got serious about it, because initially the stuff that I did was just garbage and uh, I discarded all of it. 
And but the early work that I did on this project kind of taught me what I needed to do in the way of research and also becoming better as a writer. I've never felt I've, I'm a good writer. I'm a functional writer. I feel like I labor at it. And uh, there's a lot of people that I read that, um, like Rick Atkinson is an example. I mean, he's just a brilliant writer. He is a brilliant writer. And uh, I'm not Rick Atkinson <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, you know, you have to hone that stuff over time. And uh, I also knew that when I started this project seriously, that it was going to be two volumes because I wanted to tell the story of the Battle of South Mountain and the siege and capture of Harpers Ferry in a thorough way. Because my one complaint about anything that came out about Antietam is that, and, and this is not really a complaint against the author, it's just the nature of the campaign. You're always going to spend most of what you write about. If you write about the campaign and the battle in one volume, you're going to write about the battle because that's the big event of the campaign. And you're you're going to not spend as much time on Harper's Ferry or South Mountain. And I I wanted to spend time on those. I also wanted to uh, I was interested in the character of the armies. So I thought that would be something people would find interesting because a lot of times we tend to look at these armies as they're all cookie cutter. They're all the same. And every army has its own personality, its own character. Whether you're under Braxton Bragg or Joe Johnson or Robert E. Lee or Ulysses S. Grant or George Meade, they all had a different character and uh, commanders shaped that character. So I felt that was important to tell. So all of that led to, to Antietam Creek being the first volume that sets you up and takes you to the night before the Battle of Antietam. And then that enabled me to really uh, get into the level of detail that I wanted to in the Battle of Antietam and the aftermath of the Battle of Antietam. Because what, what ultimately what ends up happening is you have to make decisions about what you're gonna put in, what you're gonna take out. And when it's one volume, you're gonna take out a lot of what made Antietam what it was <clears throat> for the people who lived it. So we end up with a helicopter view a lot of times, the commanders and the decisions that they're making and the key politicians and maybe some of the key civilians. But the real heart and soul of the story uh, sometimes doesn't get covered because you don't have the space for it. So I wanted to make sure I had the space to tell it. And fortunately, I had a publisher who um, let me do that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Scott, I'm interested in two things. One, if you could tell us a little bit about your research process. And two, as Tom mentioned at the beginning, it's 980 pages. There are not many publishers that are going to let an author go, go that long. So kind of a two-parter, research process. And who, who broached the, the length of the book? Was that you or... Was it the the publisher that said, "Hey, let's this is this is roll with it"? Well, I'll answer the second part first um, because that's quicker to answer. When I did the first book, the uh, editor that I worked with then was Bob Bruger, and one of the pieces of advice that Bob Bruger gave me is he said the book needs to be as long as it needs to be, and no longer. So when he saw the first my first draft of the manuscript. He advised me to go back through it and take out anything that I didn't feel was absolutely necessary. So I did. I went back through that with like a ruthless eye and I cut out, I don't know, probably 100 pages um, and it made it a better book. <laughs> but um, the thing was, when I submitted that manuscript, there was never from Johns Hopkins, like, you're going to need to cut another 200 pages or we're not going to publish this, never. And then um, I exceeded my word count. So when I got the contract for this this book, um, I did look at the contract. I kind of forgot. <laughs> kind of forgot. I just wrote. I just wrote the story. And um, I did exceed the word count. And once again, um, I think they just, they believed in the project. And um, they never questioned it. The, I mean, the only thing that Hopkins does 
that some authors might not like, but I would rather have the space to tell the story, but they limit you to like 20 to 25 graphics. That's maps, photographs, anything like that. So a lot of people will tell me, man, I wish you had more maps in there. I wish you had more photographs. I'm like, yeah, that'd be nice. But you couldn't afford the book. <laughs> and they probably wouldn't publish it. And I would have had to cut stuff out. So that's that's how we ended up with the length of the book. I mean, I really uh, give a lot of credit to Johns Hopkins. They, um, they were fantastic to work with. They've been fantastic all along to work with. And um, they believed in the project. And they... I thought they did a magnificent job in the the book that they produced ultimately from what I gave them. Um, the research process was initially, well, first off, I tried to look at everything I possibly could within reason. You know, one of the things that some people, when they're uh, working on a book on a battle or a person is they never stop researching. Because there always there might always be that nugget that they didn't find, and you have to draw a line at some point, and just say, you know what, I got I got enough to tell the story in a detailed way, and um, if I find more stuff along the way, great, I'll I can add it in there, but I'm not going to keep looking for things because you know you can just go on forever and you'll never you'll never produce anything if you do that. So you have to you have to draw a line on it. But I tried to look at everything I possibly could. So for example, I made a bunch of trips down to the Antietam Library, National Battlefield Library. Stephanie Gray runs that. And um, I looked through every file they had on every unit and every uh, leader that they had a file of in the library. And then I scanned everything that was what, what I felt was of, of value that I might want to have. So I looked through everything they had. And then the other thing about Antietam that is a bonanza for anybody who's going to write on it is John Gould, who was the adjutant of the 10th Maine Infantry, um, carried on a massive correspondence in the late 19th century with Union and Confederate veterans, uh, all centered for the most part in the East Woods, the cornfield, a little bit of the West Woods, the area south of the cornfield, that area of the battlefield. But all the Confederate, and he organized it all by brigade. So when you go through the Gould papers, you can go by brigade by brigade. And um, the letters he got were just fantastic. You know, a lot, I know sometimes people are like, well, this is 25 years after the battle, 30 years after the battle. You know, they've probably forgotten a lot. And a lot of them were very honest. They're like, I don't really, I don't remember much about the battle. And Gould would always send them a copy of a very detailed map of the battlefield showing all the fence lines what was growing in the fields and it was amazing how that map brought their memories back oh yes now i remember that fence line on our right and i remember that orchard or i remember that plowed field and then they started piecing it all together but the other thing was gold wasn't writing the history of the battle of antietam like John Batchelder was writing the history of the Battle of Gettysburg. So when people would write to John Batchelder, they might be prone to maybe exaggerate a little bit because this guy's writing the history of the Battle of Gettysburg and I want to be remembered in a certain way. Well, Gould wasn't doing that. Gould was just trying to figure out, you know, who shot Mansfield and what had happened on that end of the field. And he was a veteran. So they were very, very honest with him and very forthright and straightforward. And, um, so that you've got this mass of stuff that Gould collected. And then Ezra Carman, who's the colonel of the 13th New Jersey, he becomes the government historian uh, of Antietam National Battlefield. He's the guy who wrote all the government tablets that you see when you visit the battlefield. Carmen wrote all of them. And he interviewed or corresponded with soldiers from every unit that fought in the battle, every battery, every cavalry regiment, every infantry regiment. I mean, there may have been a couple that he missed, but he got almost everybody. And it, his his work is unbelievable. He wrote a 1,600-page manuscript about the Maryland campaign, which Tom Clemens edited and published uh, a few years ago, which is definitely worth getting. It's a great manuscript. Carmen was a really good historian. And, I mean, Carmen and Gould were very similar in that 
what they were interested in is not self-aggrandizement, not glorification of anybody. They wanted to know what had happened. And they and they didn't have an agenda, like well, this is a union agenda or this is a Confederate agenda. This is our agenda is we want to know what happened. So we're setting aside the political differences we had in this war, because certainly we had them. If I'm Ezra Carmen or John Gould and I'm corresponding with a Confederate, um, and we just want to know what happened. And um so there's this mass of material that Carmen had, this mass of material that Gould had, and you add that on top of all the letters and the diaries and the newspaper letters. And I had a friend of mine um, who's one of his hobbies is going through wartime newspapers. And he would send me any letters that he found about the Battle of Antietam. And I got to tell you, his letters were unbelievable. I mean, most of these had never been seen by anybody before and there's no censorship and the things these guys wrote a lot of times what happened was they would write home their parents would take the letter into the newspaper and say we think people would be interested in hearing this and they published the whole thing so anyway so we have this mass of material and then you have to decide well how am i going to use this material to tell the story so i would always outline a chapter and i would have an idea of, of what i wanted the chapter the story the chapter to tell and you might notice with a number of the chapters, uh, the beginning of the chapter may focus on an individual. Hood is a person who there's a focus in one chapter. Mansfield is a person there's a focus in one chapter. Um, there might be a unit that's kind of a focus. I feel that people identify with individuals, with other people, and it makes the story interesting to hear the stories of these people and how they may shape how the battle is fought like hood certainly shapes how the battle is fought when his division goes into action because of the um unwritten doctrine that he had trained his soldiers in how to fight because they fought that way at antietam um but he's fighting against joe hooker who's kind of out of the same mold as john bell hood so it's a it it didn't work like it had in other battlefields anyway um say so you you outline a chapter, you have all this research. And the first chapter I did, I think I had, uh, I'd have books and papers and documents open on my kid. I just had stuff all over the place. And it was, it was madness. And uh, I, I thought there's got to be a better way to do this. And I finally came upon an idea of what I would do is I would create a single document. I would call it notes for chapter two or notes for chapter three, something very unoriginal. <laughs> And um, I would go through every document I had that related to that chapter. And then I would type into this document everything that was pertinent. Now, some of what I would type in, I might then cut and paste and use in the chapter. But oftentimes, I didn't. I just had it there. So what it did was I'd organize it by order of battle. Um, what it did was when I started to work on the chapter, I had one document I had to look at and I could just go through this document and also the entering of the information got it in your head. You started to also see certain patterns that developed in the, in the fighting that was going on, or if it's not the fighting, the other parts of the story that informs what you write. And it, uh, it made the writing process so much easier for me, but I mean, the one of the notes uh chapters that i did i think for the sunken lane was about 100 pages for one chapter now the chapter was 35 pages the notes chapter was 100 pages but it was worth the time because the other thing is now you have that so if you're doing a special program about that or something like that you've got this resource you just go right to it you can you know cut and paste off of that and print from it um, but that's the that was the process that I used to uh, to write the whole book, and it never failed me. It took a long time, so it would take about a month to put that together, and then maybe a month or two to write the chapter. So you figured two to three months to write a chapter is kind of the way it went. Maybe someday somebody will annotate the Scott Hartwig papers. What do you think of me about this? <laughs> <laughs> but Scott, I wanted to ask you, just changing gears uh, just a little bit, 
Antietam is often overshadowed. We talk about battles like Gettysburg, which was which fought close, so close to it. And, and in one of your books, I can't remember which one you were talking about. You know, writers tend to think whatever they're writing about is the turning point of the battle. Uh, there were many turning points. What is it, based on your research now, uh, about Antietam that fascinates you most? You know, there's so many things about Antietam that are fascinating to me, but. I also realized that if I had dedicated this type of time to Chancellorsville or Stones River or some other major battle of the war, it would be very similar. That um, it's the um, what these people went through who were exposed to this. I mean, I, I think one of the things we do a disservice to the Civil War veteran when everything is this rosy colored view of the Civil War veteran, he's forgotten. Well, he's not forgotten. He's probably the best remembered veteran of all our veterans in all of America's wars, except maybe World War II. But, you know, the, the thing that you find as you work into the details like this is that they're just human beings and they wanted to live. They didn't look upon death differently than we look upon death today. Many of them showed unbelievable courage. A number of them utterly failed and just couldn't perform. And um, we like to categorize and separate them into cowards and heroes. And the true combat soldiers, I tend to find, didn't do that because they knew that it was a fine line between what they did in doing their duty and doing what that person did. There's one soldier that I really, really, uh, really liked his account, John Rankin. He was a sergeant in the 27th Indiana. So here's an NCO. And he wrote this fabulous account about the battle that was just so honest. Because he, he tells, they get into position north of the cornfield. They and the 3rd Wisconsin are a very exposed position. They start taking fire immediately. And what Rankin writes is he said, the first thing he thought of is I was looking for somebody who would get hit so I could help carry them off the field and get out. <laughs> so he's very honest. And he ends up, he ends up doing his duty and fighting on the hill. But he, it's this whole wrestling match with Rankin of, I don't want to be here. This is terrifying. I would like to run away. I'd like to hide but I can't because I have this honor because everybody else is looking at me and I'm a sergeant and I'm supposed to do my job. And I thought that is what so many of these soldiers are like. And I think when we acknowledge that and we recognize that, it makes what they did um, even more impressive because they weren't, you know, Rankin didn't want to be a hero. He did not want to get shot. Um, and then in the uh, in the third Wisconsin, right beside them, I think they had 11 color bearers who were shot. None were killed. All were wounded. And the interesting thing I found as I researched their wounds is that only one of them was somewhat seriously wounded. Everybody else was lightly wounded. But the code of honor in that combat unit was, if you got hit, that was your ticket out. No matter how severe it was or how or how non-severe it was, they would hand the flag to somebody else and walk to the rear and nobody thought anything of it. So you could get out of the fight. You did your duty, you carried the flag, really dangerous job. You get hit in the arm, it's a slight wound, hand the flag to somebody else, you go to the rear. So. That I find those things just that's that the humanity of the battle, the um, the living, breathing battle itself and the people involved in it. And then the aftermath of the battle are the things that I found so fascinating. But another one last thing about Antietam is that, um, you know, Antietam, the campaign is a really dramatic event in that. We have the Emancipation Proclamation, which is extremely controversial when it comes out. 
and we have the reaction of the commander of the Army of the Potomac, which is not what you would really hope it would be. Uh, but you also have then this McClellan, who's a who's a giant. I mean, he's a giant in the early war period and shaping the war and shaping the Army of the Potomac. Uh, that last chapter of the book, which talks about the events that lead to his removal from command, that's just an unbelievable story. It is just an unbelievable story. We've never seen anything like it in American history, not Douglas MacArthur, not anybody. Um, you know, you have the guys in the Irish Brigade throwing their flags down on the road in front of McClellan, telling them they don't want to fight anymore if he's not their leader. You have Andrew Atkinson Humphreys saying we should take the army to Washington and overthrow the government and install McClellan as the commander. It was unbelievable, the whole thing. And um, so, I mean, it's just this really rich, amazing story that um, that's, I would say, you know, what what is it that's special about Antietam? It's the whole, it's just this amazing story. Scott, I have a confession. <laughs> my daughters gave me your book for my birthday. Right. And the very first thing that I did was I went to the index to see if my guy was mentioned. Newton Manross. Oh, yeah. Captain and Company K, 16th Connecticut. I have the win the window frame from his boyhood home. Oh, wow. In my garage. Wow. Uh, the owner gave it to me. My wife, Mrs. B, will not let me bring that into the house. <laughs> but I am fascinated. We lived in Connecticut for uh, almost 13 years, and I became just fascinated by the 16th Connecticut and what they went through in the 40 acre cornfield. And I was reading, I didn't read it all last night, I read, read most of it. Can you tell that story to our listeners and, and, and some of what you found out regarding their experience in the, in the 40 acre cornfield? Yeah, the 16th Connecticut was a, a regiment raised in the summer of 1862 and they had almost no training when they were sent off to war. So they mustered into service, they were, they were issued their uniforms, their equipment, their weapons. They were sent to Washington, DC. They were attached to the Ninth Army Corps. They marched across Maryland with the Ninth Corps. They were present at the Battle of South Mountain. They weren't, they weren't engaged at South Mountain. So Antietam was their first battle and you can imagine if you were in the 16th Connecticut and um, someone said to you as a company commander, give the command for the company to go by right, by file in the line, you wouldn't have any idea what that meant. Nor would your soldiers. They'd never, they'd never executed it. They may have heard it one time. They may have loaded their weapons one time. So this was a, a really raw unit. And on the afternoon of September 17th, when the Ninth Corps launched its general assault, and the plan was to roll up the Confederate right flank. And um, Jacob Cox, who was the Ninth Corps commander, the tactical commander, really did a good job in organizing this attack. I mean, he put almost all the strength of the Ninth Corps in the assault. And if you don't think he did a good job go around the entire civil war and look at how many times commanders put together core level assaults that actually all went in at the same time. It's hard to do. And Cox did it and he did a good job. However, on the far left flank of the attack was uh, a brigade commanded by a colonel named Harland. And that included the 16th Connecticut and the 4th Rhode Island and the 8th Connecticut. The 8th Connecticut and the 4th Rhode Island were both veteran regiments. And there was some confusion in the um, commands that went to Harlan. We don't know precisely what happened. But the brigade did not move off as rapidly as I think Cox had hoped it would. And its division commander, Isaac Rodman, had hoped it would. And so it was delayed a little bit. And when it did move off the left of the brigade, the 16th Connecticut and the 4th Rhode Island, entered this huge 40-acre cornfield that was in front of them. And as John mentioned earlier, he's, you know, talking about going to the 16th Connecticut Monument. 
Um, that is on a trail that the National Park Service maintains called the Last Attack Trail. And I, I have to agree with John. It is one of the most evocative places on the battlefield that you can go to. And the other thing you learn when you're there is the 40-acre cornfield is not flat. It is, it is undulating terrain. And so here you have these untrained soldiers in this 40-acre cornfield. They can hear gunfire going off, artillery going off. It's terrifying. They don't have any idea what's going on around them. And to their misfortune, when A.P. Hill's forces, his division made this uh, march from Harper's Ferry that day, when they arrived on the field, they were sent in on the, uh, to attack the flank of the Ninth Corps. And it was a really well-delivered attack. And the soldiers that the 16th Connecticut faced were uh, Maxie Gregg's South Carolina Brigade, which was a really good unit. Uh, was not that big a unit, but they were all veterans and they maneuvered really well. They delivered fire really well. And they hit the 16th Connecticut. There was a tremendous amount of confusion. Some of the Confederate soldiers, um, their uniforms were in such bad shape that um, they were wearing pieces, and in some cases, full uniforms of Union soldiers. Now, I know a lot of times when I first encountered this, I thought, that's nah, nobody, nobody do that. Nobody, nobody would wear the other side's uniform in a battle. That just had to be. That had to be some mistake or exaggeration, but I found umpteen Union soldiers, not post-war contemporary, saying they wore our uniforms. In fact, a number of them said they carried our flags. One guy said they had an Ohio flag. Well, they captured the flag of the 87th Ohio at Harper's Ferry. So now other people will go, oh, well, no one would do something like that. You know, they, they were honorable. And my reply to that is when your life is on the line honor goes out the window i'm not saying that the confederate soldiers carried a union flag but a lot of union soldiers swore to it what i know they did do because some confederate soldiers mention it is their clothing was in such poor condition that they there was a lot of union uniforms in the depot at harper's ferry so they put these uniforms on. Now, why did the officers allow the men to wear these uniforms? Well, I don't know. I only I speculate in the book. And what my speculation is, is that they knew that they could be mistaken for enemy soldiers. But what they were hedging against is, are we going to lose our soldiers because of exposure, because they're not properly clothed? Or are we going to let these guys wear this clothing? So one, a soldier from Archer's Tennessee, uh, Georgia Brigade said, when we marched out of Harper's Ferry, we looked like we had come from Boston. <laughs> so, but he said, as we marched on, it got warmer and warmer and the guys were casting off some of this, the, the jackets that they were wearing. But it, so anyway, the 16th is confronted by this just really confusing situation and they don't know how to maneuver and the Confederates do and they maneuver into positions they just cut the regiment to pieces and um there's a lot of crowding and confusion and guys don't know what's going on you can imagine if you don't even know how to maneuver just basic maneuvers and you're in a cornfield with a corn standing seven to eight feet tall and you're a company officer and you're trying to give commands to your men at one point the colonel of the regiment is really frustrated he's giving these commands and the regiment aren't executing them and one of his captains or a couple of his captains said what do you want us to do and he 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 yelled back at them i want you to face the enemy <laughs> so it tells you something about how um how terrible the situation was for the 16th if i may just back up slightly i'm getting really yeah. excited here and scott talk about this tom because <laughs> these are my guys but i was reading this last night A.P. Hill's march is the stuff of legend. 17 miles, they march from Harper's Ferry. But what I found super fascinating reading last night, that wasn't even the most epic march during the Maryland campaign. Could you talk briefly about A.P. Hill's march from Harper's Ferry? 
Yeah, I mean, Hill's march from Harper's Ferry, when I looked at the um, how long it took them to march, they marched about two and a half miles an hour, which that's kind of a standard pace that you want your troops to maintain. It wasn't an unbelievable pace. In fact, very few Confederate soldiers in A.P. Hill's division ever remarked upon about the march being remarkable at all. They did say that there weren't a lot of halts along the march, that it was warm, there was a lot of straggling on the march. And what I think happened that I write in the book is that A.P. Hill had to hedge between, if I march too fast, I'll lose a lot of men to straggling. If I march too slowly, I won't get there in time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cut the middle. But Stonewall Jackson's his what he wanted his commanders to do is you march 50 minutes and you rest 10 minutes. That was what he wanted. And he would arrest you if you didn't do that. So and so what I find is that AP Hill didn't follow that on this march. Uh, there were we don't know how many stops that they made to let the men rest, but they weren't as many as Jackson might have liked. <clears throat> that enabled Hill to bring the maximum number of men that he reasonably could get onto the field, onto the field in, in, in decent order. That was the other thing. If you march too fast, then your column gets all strung out. And he knew he was going to be badly needed. The other thing is, I think Hill was probably communicating regularly with Robert E. Lee. So Lee had an idea of when Hill was going to reach the field so that he could calculate what he would need to do on the field as far as holding off the Yankees until A.P. Hill arrived. Um, so it was a good march, but the um, I just forgot their uh, unit, the 15th and uh, 17th Georgia of, uh, oh, what brigade? Um, I just forgot the brigade they were in. Oh, Toombs Brigade. Robert Toombs Brigade, they made a march on the 16th and 17th that was about 35 miles and then reached the battlefield and went into the fight and did really well. So that was probably the biggest, longest march of any unit in the Maryland campaign. But Hill's march became the stuff of legends because he arrived at the right place at the right time. Now, one of the things I do try and do is give some credit in here to uh, David R. Jones, who commanded the Confederate division that was then being smashed by the Ninth Corps attack. Jones had been in the area for a couple of days and he knew the terrain pretty well. And A.P. Hill does give him credit that he was the person who, who recommended the Hill where he should put his men in. So you can imagine A.P. Hill arrives in the field and suddenly he just has this internal map he knows where every all the landscape undulations are and where he should put his men of course he didn't know that he had no idea he had somebody help him but a lot of times those people they fall through the cracks in the memory of history and hill gets all of the credit for this and i think hill deserves a lot of credit he did a great job but david r jones probably played a role in that what, what terrifies me, Scott, about the story of that march is my wife wants us, she and I, to replicate that march, including fording the Potomac. I've held her off so I, I, I may lose. I, I may have to. But before we go any further for the next question, John, I think we want to thank our sponsor, Civil War Trails, and our buddy Drew Gruber for helping us out with this podcast. Tom, I'm glad you said that. Civil War Trails, of course, is the world's largest open-air museum, offering over 1,500 sites across six states including over two dozen stops along their Antietam campaign driving trail. Go visit them at civilwartrails.org. Civilwartrails.org. And take a signed selfie, as we always do. Absolutely. I took one in Columbia on Sunday. Columbia, Tennessee. Scott, we could do, uh, you touched on McClellan, we could do an entire episode on him, we could do an entire episode on Robert E. Lee, but... Uh, this is our podcast. We get to ask our own questions. The most right. fascinating figure to me at Antietam uh, has always been Ambrose Burnside. I get accused of being a fan of Burnside. I am not. He was he obviously made many mistakes, but he was a fascinating guy. He was in a fix there. I know we don't have 
a lot of time left today, but could you just give us kind of your view of uh, of Ambrose Burnside at the, at the battle and, and in the war? In the war, once he moved up from Corps Command to Army Commander, and he knew it, he was out of his league. He was out of his element. He was beyond his uh, ability to really be an effective commander. Because one of the things that Burnside, I found, uh, was pretty smart about up to Antietam is he he tended to be the guy who got you the resources you needed to fight the campaign or the battle. And what he needed also was the guys to fight the campaign and the battle. So that was Isaac Stevens and Jesse Reno uh, up until Isaac Stevens gets killed and Jesse Reno gets killed. But Antietam, it was Jacob Cox. So when Cox tries to reason with Burnside when, when McClellan suspends the wing command structure and Burnside's really no longer a wing commander. Cox is like, sir, you should take command of the Corps. Everybody knows who you are. They all respect you, et cetera, et cetera. And Burnside's like, no, 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 no. I, I'm, I, I don't want to like, you know, feed the hooker monster. Uh, I'm going to stay the wing commander and, and, and my staff will help you. You'll, you'll run everything. And I think really what may have been going on there is Burnside didn't trust himself to manage the tactical operations. And he did trust Cox and Cox came through for him. Burnside to me did not do badly in the Maryland campaign. He was the one who came up with the plan that they used that wins the Battle of South Mountain, which was the two enveloping movements by the Ninth Corps and the First Corps. They seized the key terrain. It forced Lee to retreat from the battlefield. And at Antietam, I don't think he did badly. There's, there's so much misinformation about Burnside. Much of it was created by George McClellan and all of his acolytes ever since then who believe everything that McClellan said is true. A lot of what McClellan wrote isn't true. Like, for example, at the Battle of South Mountain, in own story, McClellan wrote that Burnside never, ever came close to the battlefield. Well, that's not, that we know that's not true. There's documented evidence that Burnside was at his command post where he had a whole view of the battlefield and McClellan joined him up there. Uh, but McClellan leaves that out. And at one of the things that comes up at, at Antietam is that uh, McClellan gave Burnside an order at 8 a.m. in the morning to carry the lower bridge. And he didn't give him an order at 8 a.m. in the morning. The order was written at 9, 10 a.m. And Burnside says that he didn't get the order until about 10 a.m., and people have speculated for a long time, well, how's that possible? It was only about a mile and a half, at the, about a mile and a half, the Burnside's headquarters from uh, McClellan's headquarters. And um, we don't know is the answer. But what we can speculate on is that at the exact same time that the order, the order is time signature that goes to Burnside to open his attack. That's the other giveaway that there wasn't an 8 a.m., you're not going to write a, a, a repeat order and say, open your attack at 9.10. It's at 9.10 a.m. At 9.10 a.m., the exact same time, they write a dispatch to Edwin Sumner about being careful in the way he's advancing, that the right is suffering. So I think what happened, and we don't know this again, we can only speculate. We make ed educated speculation. While they were preparing the order to Burnside, so McClellan has learned William B. Franklin's 6th Corps is within about an hour's march of the field. Okay, we have the reserve that I want on the field. We're getting a lot of really good reports from Hooker's attack on the right flank. I've got the 2nd Corps, most of the 2nd Corps moving to action. The 12th Corps is going in. It's time for Burnside to open his diversionary attack, which McClellan himself even admits it was in his first report. So at 9, 10 a.m., the staff officers start writing out the orders to Burnside. While they're working on the orders, all of a sudden, they start getting all the report, reports coming in. Mansfield's down. Hooker's down. The right flank is suffering. Okay, now there's a problem on the right flank. We need to write Sumner immediately. So there may be a delay. You stop writing this order to Burnside and you're working on this order that takes priority now that's going to go to Sumner. Then you go back, finish the order to Burnside. So it goes out later than you anticipated that would go out and might explain why the order gets to Burnside a little bit before 10. What I found in all the sources that I looked at 
with the Ninth Corps is that in all the attacks they made against the Lower Bridge, there was no delay in organizing the attacks. If one failed, they immediately started working to try to organize another one. So Burnside wasn't sitting back there, dilly-dallying, not doing anything. In fact, when he made the first attack, the commander of the unit that had the most dangerous mission, the 11th Connecticut, they were supposed to draw the fire of the enemy, was commanded by Colonel Henry Kingsbury, who in many respects was Ambrose Burnside's adopted son, because he was one of Kingsbury's, because Kingsbury's father had died. And Burnside was one of the people that his father had had, you know, look after his son. So he gave this guy who was almost his son the most dangerous mission, and he got killed in, in, the, in the attack. So I found that Burnside, you know, once they took the bridge, there was no delay, no dilly-dallying around to try and get reinforcements across and get an attack organized. But sometimes people think that these things, you just snap your fingers. And everything happens. So I, I try to spend some time in the chapters that deal with this. Like, for example, when they moved Wilcox's division from the east side of the Antietam to the west side of the Antietam. Well, how long was that column? How long did it take from one end of the column to the other to reach the other side, move from column into battle line? Well, it's at least an hour. It's an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And you're maneuvering into positions where you're under fire and observation of the enemy. You have to get artillery across the creek. You have to get ammunition across the creek. You have to determine, uh, you have to communicate to all the officers who are going to lead the assault against the Confederate positions as to where they're supposed to go, what they're supposed to do, who their support is, who they're supposed to coordinate with. So I, I found the Ninth Corps actually performed really well in the battle. And I thought uh, Burnside, he certainly made some mistakes that I talk about in the book, um, but he didn't do badly. Scott, before we tie a bow on this podcast, and by the way, Tom and I would love to do an eight-hour podcast with you. That would be fun. <laughs> it would be, it would be a, a marathon, but tr <laughs> trust me, we would enjoy it immensely. Uh, it would be awesome. We asked, we posed on our robust Facebook pages, author Tom McMillan and John Banks Civil War blog. We, we post some questions, uh, solicited questions from, from readers. And Alex has a question for you. He goes, how do you, Scott, justify calling Antietam a tactical draw when the course of the battle and the outcome roughly followed that of Gettysburg? That's actually a, a good question that he asked because you could in some respects, say the Battle of Gettysburg is a tactical draw because Lee's army remains on the field on July the 4th. But Lee's army remains on the field on July the 4th for the same reason that um, it remained on the field on September 18th, is that Lee needed some time to gather his wounded, evacuate his wounded, um, because that was really a big operation and determine an order of march for the retreat, how they were going to conduct the retreat, the roads they were going to use. That takes some time to, to, to put that all together. The big difference between the two battles is you do not have a complete repulse of a major assault. Lee makes a major assault. That is a core level assault on July the 3rd. And it is defeated, soundly defeated. Lee, even amongst, if you if you look at his officers, his officers all claim that they, many of them claim they didn't lose the battle. You look at the enlisted men, they all believe, or most of them, a majority of them tended to believe the battle had been lost. You look at Antietam, a lot of the soldiers felt that both sides had delivered some really hard blows and that neither side had really won uh, a decisive uh, victory in the battle or had, or had won a tactical victory in the battle. So tactically, if you look at Antietam, what key terrain did George McClellan seize on September the 17th? He didn't seize any key terrain. The key terrain is the Westwoods, Houser's Ridge, Real Ridge, Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge. He didn't seize any of it. The Confederates controlled all of that at the end of the battle. He wins though, an operational victory 
because Lee retreats out of Maryland. And McClellan should get credit for that. That's he wins an operational victory. And what I argue is that Lincoln is the one who makes Antietam a strategic victory by issuing the, the Emancipation Pro Proclamation. And I go into my reasons why I think it's a strategic victory in the book, which you can look at. I won't drag this out by going into those. But those are kind of the differences that I see. Had Lee mounted a core level assault and been smashed at Antietam, uh, you could certainly say George McClellan won a tactical victory. But I would say at Gettysburg, George Meade won a tactical victory, he won an operational victory, and he won a strategic victory with the Battle of Gettysburg because Lee failed to achieve all of his, his aims and suffered catastrophic losses. Now, he also suffered catastrophic losses in the Maryland campaign, but McClellan gave him the opportunity to rebuild his army after that, which Lee did in the month of October. And you know, had a really good army by the time November rolled around. <laughs> Tom, I could go on for hours here. It's <laughs> been unbelievable. We, we've, we've really enjoyed it. We hope we can one day coerce you to come back because we've got <laughs> sure. 9,000 other questions. Thanks so much for the work that, you, that you've done. It just, as we've written small works to, to do this amount of research, this amount of work, this much amount of writing, it's just uh, phenomenal. I did get a little, I, I actually felt good there for, for about three seconds. You weren't sure what, what brigade those regiments were in. I, I, that happens to me every day, all the time. In fact, <laughs> Scott Hart, we at one point had a little bobble, uh, made, a, made us, okay, maybe we're not so bad at, uh, after uh, all. Listen, you'd be amazed how much I've forgotten. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, and Tom, we didn't even cover the preliminary emancipation proclamation, Shepherdstown. Which yeah. is which I love talking, you know, finding out more about that battle and all kinds of other stuff. So Scott, we're going to have to have you back. I'll, I'll be happy to. Or we'll, we'll we'll also offer you dinner at the semi-official restaurant of this podcast, the Press Room in in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. <laughs> right. We shall buy. And we may <laughs> even offer some some semi-official beer of the podcast that, that would be <laughs> iron city beer since tom and i are both from, from pittsburgh okay Correct. that sounds so, good. <laughs> but we thank you very much for doing this this is really well, thanks for having me yeah. and I, I think we need to do we need to listen to the banjos again tom it doesn't end until we hear the banjos let's hear the banjos